The Blueprint 1543 team finished 18 months of qualitative research, summarily called In Search of Theological Scientists, or ISOTs, a planning grant. Five key strategies and 20 specific example projects emerged, all with the goal of activating more progress in a science-engaged theology. This four-part series of podcasts highlights some of the important reflections from leaders in science-engaged theology who we interviewed along the way. We hope you'll enjoy these conversations and get involved. Our focus with the ISOTS project was to nurture engagement among science folks with theology, but not surprisingly, this raised a lot of questions about what theology is, what it's for, and how we think of its relevance to a thriving human life. It also caused us to consider the different ways that science might be a meaningful tool for enriching theological work. First, let's hear from Justin Barrett, who is a cognitive scientist, a Christian, and president of Blueprint 1543. Theology aims at creating a comprehensive view of the world, especially a world in relation to God. That's where the theo comes from, theology. So who is God? Does God exist? How can we know that God exists? And if God exists, what implications does that have for how we think about the world? But it's not just about God, it's about everything in relation to God or through the lens of the existence of, say, a God who has created and sustained the natural world and has put people on it to live in some kind of relationship with God and with each other. And so suddenly everything having to do with existence, with uh, what kinds of things there are, with human identity, with human purpose and flourishing, suddenly is a theological question. Our morality suddenly is part of the theology, our purpose, our point in life. And so theology from this view is very broad, very expansive, and connects with many of the research questions that those in the human sciences deal with on the daily. Many concepts in the human sciences have equivalencies or near equivalencies in theology. Um, to take some easy examples, when we think about uh, what it means for people to be healthy in, say, the medical sciences, it's not an obvious question. It's a, a contested question that is only answered in relation to certain values and health or well-being or what humans are supposed to be, what their purpose is, what it means to do life well. Well, those are theological questions and have theological discussions going on, as well as then what is a healthy life? What is a good, fulfilled life? Uh, what is mental health? What is well-being? All of these questions in the human sciences that motivate many human scientists are at a certain level theological questions as well. As we considered who to interview for this project, we realized that in our network of contacts alone, we could count at least four married couples in which one spouse was a psychological scientist and the other is a theologian. Talk about integration. These couples are casually weaving theology and psychology together in conversation over coffee in their kitchens in the morning. Or in one case, it's more likely tea they're drinking. Joanna Collicott is a psychologist, and her husband is theologian Alistair McGrath. Although Alistair has science training as a former physicist and Joanna is an ordained minister. 
It's probably an understatement to say that they've done a lot of thinking about this topic. What you'll hear next is a conversation I recorded with Alistair and Joanna one morning over Zoom, although for them it was probably already the evening. I have to say, I was slightly intimidated logging onto Zoom and seeing so much brain power sitting together on their living room couch. We started out talking about having a more broad and expansive view of what theology is and is for. For me, theology is about uh, getting a sense of the big picture of faith and how you fit into it. And it means it's definitely not simply the intellectual analysis of belief. It's something much bigger and much more exciting than that. I think that's one of the obstacles we have to overcome, this emaciated view of what theology is all about. I think a lived faith is a kind of integrated life. And it's an integrated life of the intellect and the emotions and relationships and action and ethics and so everybody has a tacit theology, uh, whether you're an academic theologian or whether you're just a simple Christian. You, you have a set of beliefs about the self and God and the world. That, In fact, I think perhaps all people have a tacit theology. When you start to develop theology as an academic discipline, it just loses its power if, if you cut it off from the rest of your, your life because it's part of something that's much bigger. Doing theology and developing theology sort of shapes your imagination for what's possible in the world, too. It, it sort of gives meaning to how you interpret your experiences. So I guess I'm, I'm thinking about the, you know, the phrase, uh, a vision of reality. As we're doing theology, we're shaping our vision of reality. How do the tools of science sort of plug into the conversation? with theology? Well, I think theology gives you a, a very powerful vision of reality. I mean, we're not just looking at theology, we're looking through it. We're kind of way trying to understand what sort of world it discloses and how we fit into it. But theology isn't the only tool to help make sense of this world. And therefore, if you like, we need a set of toolkits, and theology is a very important one, but it's not the only one. And that's why I think science is important, because it brings... Um, it brings additional skills and methods to bear without in any way discrediting or displacing uh, a theological approach. So there's room for them all. But for me, theology, who like, captures the vision and shows us why we need science to, in fact, um, expand it a bit more and help us to live in it. Anything you want to add to that, Joanna? Just that I think theology doesn't just kind of shape our reality, as it were, but that reality also shapes our theology. And... Um, that often our theology is a response to our lived experience, but it's also for the Christian a response to Jesus or the Christ event. So you're already doing something that's a bit like science. You're engaging with something that you've seen and told you about that they've seen and touched and heard. And then you use the theology to make sense of it, along with scientific theory as well. They have it in common in a way. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, we'll move on to the next range of topics, which is what your comments on the interdisciplinary projects and requiring trust and collegial relationships in your feedback document. Starting first with sort of some of the problems, some of them are, are comments that we had in our document, but talking about what the problem is, like what are the anxieties from across the disciplines? 
that cause us to require needing more trust to build more relationships before we can actually make progress? I think there's some anxieties around uh, the, the equal nature of the partnership, the interdisciplinary partnership. Uh, will both, or if there's more than two, will all sides be taken equally seriously or will one dominate? Um, and I think that's there across the board, isn't it? Would you say? I think that's there across the board. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so important for theologians and, for example, psychologists to be friends and to actually try and understand each other. Because without that understanding and mutual trust, you're going to be suspicious. You're going to see each other as competing for territory, as competing for influence. And you're not really attentive to the possibilities for synergy and and, um, working together that could result. So I think it's very, very important to have people who know and understand each other and therefore have, so to speak, set their prejudices to one side because they know they can have a profitable conversation. And speaking of conversation, could you make uh, some comment about some of the problems being related to a misunderstanding of terminology and needing a shared language? Yeah, I mean, a really good example of that is, I think it's Ken Pargament and I think it's Annette Mahoney, but any Pargament and Mahoney, you have this notion of sanctification and it's a psychological idea and it's about the way that people make relationships holy in a kind of secular way. When I've been having conversations with theological colleagues, they really hate the idea that psychologists would use a term like sanctification because that is the jargon of the theologian. From their point of view, it's not proper sanctification because it's people trying to make their life holy and God isn't part of that account. I think when one or other discipline takes language that the other discipline thinks is its property, that starts to be a problem. So actually finding a shared neutral language a might help that relationship but it b might do better justice to some of the phenomena people are trying to talk about because it doesn't carry all the kind of baggage that some of the terms that we already use do so i think language is really really important and i found in teaching psychology of religion and researching it that psychology offers a really good language for people of different faiths to talk about religion because they don't have their religious baggage associated with it but if you're talking about a conversation between theology and theology one might need to actually start to be um, imaginative about the new terms that we use. Alistair I wonder if you might speak to the fear especially coming from theologians that scientists or um, scientific subfields are only interested in reductionist approaches in naturalism um, do you think you might have have something to say to the theologian that might have that on on their mind? Well, from a theologian's perspective, there's a, a real risk you'll misunderstand what somebody else is saying. And because you may have apprehensions, you may overreact, you may perhaps um, fail to see quite what they're saying. But I think that what we need to, to be aware of is that for a scientist, reduction is just what you do all the time. It's yeah. um, it's trying to make um, as simple sense as you can. It's not saying I'm reducing the world to these simple ideas. It's saying uh, this, this is a good way of trying to make sense of something that's complicated. And so I think we, there needs to be a conversation about this. Um, so that in effect, you'll understand what they mean by these terms. The psychologist needs to understand why theologians get so anxious about this. 
I think maybe theologians need to understand that perhaps they're being a little bit overprotective and perhaps um, failing to appreciate that what is being proposed is what could be a very helpful way of framing the whole discussion. So I think that's why I think friendship is so important because you you instinctively know this person is trustworthy. So you, instead of saying, no, you're wrong, much more like say, look, tell me more because I need to understand this before I can really comment. So I think there's a, a sort of this invitational aspect that's so important that you feel you can have a conversation to open something up so you really understand it with the expectations may actually lead somewhere interesting. Anything to add, Joanna? I guess just to amplify um, one of the points that Alistair made, that, that we were talking earlier about how I teach a course in psychology of religion. And the way I do it each week is to say, um, let's look at psychologists who've looked at religion as if it were this. So one week it might be religion might be an illness. Another week a religion might be a way of making sense of things. Another week it might be religion as a way of coping with life. And this kind of student feedback I've had is they hadn't understood that these models are just ways of saying, well, what, would it be helpful to look at this as if it were this, rather than making a kind of ontological statement that it is this. And that's been quite liberating for them and something that there has been either not there in the theology they've been taught or it's been not expressed clearly enough for them to understand that's what's going on. I like the point that you both made about sort of being forced to change the language that you're using to explain your ideas can sometimes be very fruitful. Sort of like my experience when I was getting my master's in theology and like having to then teach Sunday school to elementary school students. It's like, yeah. wait, do I really understand actually what I'm saying? Even <laughs> So um, I think that's really cool. Okay, so we could shift sort of to the third portion. So you could do a little testimony time of your own journey of uh, integration or talk about just between the two of you, the conversations you have. I think we both have in common that as adolescents, we had periods of being an atheists. So for me, it wasn't very long. It was from the age of about 10 to the age of about 13. For you, it was longer, wasn't it, I think? Uh, and then we both, in our different ways, realise the limits of that and uh, certainly and, and it was in the context of thinking about science for me and I know it was for you because you've talked a lot about that so although we don't often talk about that story to each other it's probably part of our shared history isn't it I'm sure it is yes yeah. I think another thing to say is that um if you're married to somebody or if you're very very close friends to somebody, you can have these conversations all the time and and you, you begin to take that for granted I think the real difficulty is that if people are meeting specifically to have these conversations, well, um, they're understood to pressure that actually the conversations may not be quite as productive and natural as you might like. Mm. And therefore having some sort of um, uh, some sort of relationship or, or some sort of um, framework so that these can be normal, just the sort of thing you do all the time. I think that is so important. Yeah. Otherwise, these are going to be very stressful, very focused conversations where because you have a, an argument about the first item, it means that the second item, which should be very, very good, doesn't get discussed as well. So I think we, we need to find some way of just, in effect, making these conversations more extended and more natural. I think the fruitful conversations we have, it's things that come as a size, isn't it? But if you're having a conversation where actually it's about territory, you know, behind it are anxieties about territory and power and uh, what the outcome of the conversation might be, it, it kind of becomes slightly uh, unnatural, I guess. 
And I think the best theology is done on the hoof, which is why I love reading Paul, because he does theology on the hoof. It's not, uh, he's doing something else. And then theology kind of comes out as a side issue. And I think when we've had productive conversations, we've been talking about something else. And then an idea comes, doesn't it? Uh, Are there any specific topics that are coming up a lot lately among you either in regards to research you're working on right now or maybe just sort of what are the hot topics right now are they are they more conceptual things or are they more on the ground like issues about doing church and I know you know tools of psychology often I'm working on a project right now about the tools of psychology and how they could be relevant to doing ministry practical theology so um yeah it's just when it, there's any specific topics that you guys that's coming up a lot right now well one i think is a sense of frustration well, it may not be justified frustration but it is um why don't those people understand this point and and the reason they understand it is because they they don't know enough or they've been reading the wrong people and it, it's one of those things where Quite often when you're talking to one group of people who just don't get something because it, 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 it's in an adjacent territory, they don't actually know it. And, 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 you, and you feel frustrated because you say, if only they knew this properly, we could actually have a good conversation, but they've got to get up to a certain level before we can have that conversation. I think that sense of frustration is actually quite widespread. I, th I think um, an area I've watched a lot not so much now, but um, certainly up until a couple of years ago, was on mortality and death and our attitudes to death, uh, including children's understanding of death. And like we were listening to the news this morning, weren't we? And um, there's a big move by uh, funeral directors in Britain to ask educators to talk about death to children um, more directly as part of the curriculum in school. And we were just saying to each other, why is it funeral directors and not the church who are vocal in this area? And that's been, an, and I think I said, if the church can't, hasn't got something useful to say about death, it has nothing to say about anything. And that's a particular area where it's been really hard to get church as an institution interested in a discourse where, for example, understandings of children's cognitive development and, and concepts about death, understandings of bereavement, theological understandings about the nature of mortality and resurrection uh, to have that conversation where these perspectives are all brought together it's been really hard hasn't it because the focus of most church discourse is growth at the moment and mission as growth which i think is fed by a kind of anxiety kind of existential anxiety which is perhaps mirrored in the intellectual anxiety that you see in theology. Um, so I think there's a lot of anxiety around in society more broadly, especially post-COVID. But I think it's, you know, the, we do our theology in a context and I think it's quite a, an anxious context at the moment. And that colours our own individual and intellectual anxieties as well. Well, there's a lot there, Joanna. I, that is making my mind, like the, the funeral directors have this very common experience and interaction with death but that's not going to be most people's experience either so even that yeah. is like bewildering and making meaning from death and yeah that's that's and then the experience of grief and what to make of that and, you know. and everybody has it and I think the other area that I've worked in practical theology has been dementia and that's another mm -hmm. area that nearly everybody has a story to tell of 
a relative or a friend who's been affected by that. So there, there's some really big existential questions around that would be so illuminated by a discussion that was both theological and scientific and we're not quite there with it and I think that's part of the frustration isn't it that there isn't the kind of matrix within which to place these discussions. If you don't mind I'm just rewinding really quick would you mind if I asked you what um, prompted atheism at the age of 10? Oh for me it was actually a bit of a rerun of, of the kind of I guess what happened in the 18th century, I kind of became a modernist for a while. I I, I kind of um, thought, I actually remember thinking, well, he, you know, Jesus must have been a good man, um, but he couldn't have died and rose again. They probably stole his body and then they made hid his body and made that story. And I also realised that most of the adults I knew, while they said they believed it, I didn't think they really did believe it. And it was a kind of cultural thing for them. And I also started reflecting philosophically and psychologically about questions like, is there such a thing as altruism? And thinking, well, I'm doing this because I want to please somebody and I want to please somebody because it would advance my interests and how could you ever be free from all of this? And just decided that that science perhaps provided, uh, you know, a less optimistic but, but a more realistic account of the way the world was. And then something happened that, that changed that completely. But uh, so I had about three years of inhabiting that kind of space. Yours was more a Marxist thing, wasn't it? I think. Yes, yes. My mind was partly this idea of look, science and religion are at war with each other. I love science. So, end of story. And I can't take religion seriously. But also, I got into Marxism. Uh, I, I loved its idea of a big picture which made sense of everything. I found that very, very attractive. Then began to realize actually it, it didn't make sense of everything and there were an awful lot of inconsistencies. But staying with this idea, if there is a big picture which makes sense of things, I want to find it. So actually, when I then began to read C.S. Lewis and saw him articulating this idea, I thought this is very exciting. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Uh, and you said, Joanna, that maybe science was a part of, I guess, I, I find that like so people think of the sciences and maybe it's people who aren't engaged with the sciences as something that sort of de-enchants the world once you know kind of how things work or whatever. But yeah. Uh, it seems like more people who are more involved with sciences, it can have the opposite effect. Like the more you know about how the world works, it has this sort of enchanting effect. And you're like, there's, you know, there's got to be something more. You have this transcendent engagement with the world. Mm -hmm. Is that, was that part of your experiences? I think it's much more characteristic of people who do physical science, that sense of wonder. As you get into go through biology and then into more psychosocial sciences, you learn a lot about how awful people are. And, and you can become very, very cynical. And the most cynical people, a group of people are kind of psych psychotherapists, I would say, and, and, and certain branches of medicine that deal with people rather than bodies, which is why I rather like the move in psychology into positive psychology, where there is a kind of wonder at how amazing people are. Um, most of psychology has been dominated by, you know, partly following Freud with 
the dreadful things that people do and the kind of hidden reasons for them doing it, like my idea that there's no such thing as altruism, really. But in positive psychology, people just say, stop, look at the amazing things people do. Look, look at children, you know, um, look at uh, creativity, look at what human beings are capable of and wonder at it. And there is a tradition within Christianity which kind of makes people cautious about that because of this idea of sin. But actually... Uh, you know, we're also made in God's image and taking that kind of seriously seems to be really, really important. So uh, it, for me, seeing human beings in their frailty, I do wonder and it, it does. I am enchanted by it, but that's not true for many psychologists. And I think that may also be the cultural rub. Well, you know, some theologians have a very negative view of humanity, so they're happy bedfellows with Freud. But the view of the human person in both theology and psychology is quite an interesting place to start, I think, a conversation. And you have there both pessimists and optimists, uh, which is probably determined by temperament rather than discipline. Maybe anything to add on that topic, Alistair? No, I thought trying to put that very well. <laughs> yeah, it's good. And it's a very good point in um, not flat flattening, you know, the sciences, mm. you know, and thinking of it as They're one different, monolith. No? Yeah. They are different. There's a lot of variety there. Okay, I'm happy to wrap up. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to add overall? And I don't think so for me, other than um, it's a great project um, and it's, you know, it's nice to be able to support it and to just explore a bit more, you know, how those conversations can happen in a more fruitful and productive way than they have. Yeah, and thank you for leading our conversation. It was very well done. All right, this is excellent. Thank you so much and I hope great. you enjoy, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank and you. Thank you. Have a good day. Pleasure talking to you both. Bye-bye. You know, after doing a deep dive that really refreshed our convictions about the value of theology and science's integrated theology in particular, it was exciting because there are issues that academic theology is wrestling with that we think that bringing in new tools from the sciences could really be helpful. We listened really deeply to what our friends had to say. These are scientists, theologians, and some philosophers and ministers too. And they had great ideas about how to encourage more of this kind of work. And then we put our brain power together to synthesize five key strategies that would frame their ideas. To find out about those five strategies, keep listening to the next few episodes. Until then, have a great day. Thanks for listening. You can learn more on our website, blueprint1543.org or theologicalscientist.com. In Search of Theological Scientists was supported by a generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The views and opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of the John Templeton Foundation. Mm-hmm.